to those that uh, have also not been here, just, just a brief on where we are as a church in our sermon series. We are going through the month of October through a sermon series called Repent and Be Loved. Um, this series is to capture the values of our church, the values of gospel, the values of community, and the values of discipleship. We value these things. We want all in this church to embrace those values, and this sermon series is an attempt to do that. And we're looking at four of our core needs, the need for significance, control, comfort, and acceptance. And this morning we come to our need for control. But we need to repent. There's a need for us to turn from ourselves and to turn to God, which is what repentance is. Turning from our godlessness and turning to godliness. And this morning, while control is certainly a need that we have, and there's an element of, of, of a requirement of our control, we can get it twisted as well. And so we're going to be looking at how we twist the need for control. Our sermon text today is from Genesis 3, 1 through 13, and then verses 20 through 24. You can find that in your bulletin, or it's in your Bible, near the front of your uh, the Bible. Um, so, let me read the Word of God. Genesis 3, verses 1 through 13, and then 20 through 24. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of the tree, any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, I told you that you were naked. Have you eaten the tree which I commanded you to not eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Now skipping down to verse 20. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I'm going to take you back to Bible class. Have you ever been to Bible class? I'm going to, I'm, going to, I'm going to take you back through three really critical stories of the Old Testament. Let's start with Abraham. You remember Abraham? Genesis 12, we read of Abraham. Now Abraham, if you know, was promised by God that his children would be as numerous as as the stars. But something very profound happened in Abraham. He got old and he didn't have any children. And so what did Abraham and Sarah do? They thought, God's not living up to his promise. 
So let's figure a way out of this. So they went to Sarah's helper, Hagar. And they said, Abraham, go with Hagar. And so Abraham went with Hagar. And Ishmael was born to them. Now, this was not the promise that God had in store. Ishmael was something that Abraham and Sarah picked up. And Ishmael ended up becoming a significant thorn in the promised son that Abraham was given in Isaiah. The second story, Moses. You know Moses. Moses was the one that delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. Or God did, but he was the one that led them. They crossed the Red Sea, and then they wandered in the wilderness for how long? Forty years. Now, if you've ever been in the desert, you know the desert is a very dry and arid place. And so the people of Israel, wandering in the wilderness for such a long time, they started to say, hey, we need water. And they started to be like, yo, Moses, man, you've taken us out of Egypt, or at least out of water, and we're here. Like, what of it, man? And Moses is like, yeah, what of it, God? We've got it. And what does God do? He says, I want you to speak to a rock. Speak to this rock. But what does Moses do in Numbers 20 with that rock? He takes a staff and he strikes it two times. Bang! Bang! Water comes out. But what happens? Moses is denied entrance into the promised land because he did not obey the command of God in speaking to the rock. He struck the rock. He took matters into his own hand like Abraham and Sarah and tried to control the situation. The last story I want to share with you is a story maybe you know, maybe you don't know. But it comes from King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. 1 Samuel 13, Saul was given the task of fighting the Philistine army. Go fight! And they would have seasons where they would go fight the Philistine's army. But before the people of Israel would go and fight the Philistine army, they would make a sacrifice to God. And God told him, hey, before you fight the Philistines, I want you to wait for the prophet Samuel to come to you. And he's going to make the sacrifice for you. And it'll be seven days. And so the Israelite army comes to the precipice of where they can see the army of the Philistines. And it's been seven days, and Saul's going, I see that army. And I don't see Samuel. What's going to happen? Like, yo, Samuel's not here. They didn't have iPhones to be like, yo, are you here? What's coming? So he took matters into his own hands. And he makes the sacrifice. And as the sacrifice is finished, guess who shows up? Samuel. Saul took matters into his own hand. He didn't trust the word of God. And you know what happened to him? The crown that was placed on top of his head was removed from it. Three stories. Three similar situations. When faced with difficulties, these men of God did not trust God, but they resorted to themselves, trusting in what they had, in the wisdom that they were given. And in trusting themselves, they brought upon themselves significant and negative consequences. The same is true for you and I. That when we face difficult circumstances, there is a temptation that we all face that says, you know what? God's not going to come through. I've got to work in my own power, my own wisdom to try to figure out this difficult situation. But when we make these decisions, when we, when we enter into social settings and we feel a deep insecurity, and we, and we cast before these people an inauthentic self to try to be approved in life, we're doing the same thing that these Biblical characters did, trusting in our own selves to meet the difficult circumstances 
that we face each and every day? Are you a parent that hovers over your kid for fear of what might come to them? Are you a person that enters into difficult situations at work and are willing to lie and to cheat and to do things that are not proper? Are you tired of trying to control your life? Of trying to control the difficult circumstances of your life? Let me propose to you that there's a different way of living. A way of trusting God. I say this, and then I take you to Genesis 3. Like the characters that I mentioned, and like you, Adam and Eve know what it's like to be in a difficult circumstance, don't they? They experienced this right after they had eaten of the forbidden tree. It led them to the knowledge that they were naked and they were ashamed. Of course, they didn't like it. And in response to their discomfort, they tried to control the situation by taking leaves and covering up their nakedness. Surely, they thought, this would fix our nakedness. Surely, this would cover our shame. But when God showed up, all that went out the window. And the shame... And the embarrassment that they had felt from being naked was right back against them. And they hid. They hid trying to control the situation because the control that they tried to do in covering their shame is now once again trying to hide from it. And their assumption was this. God is going to react harshly. He is not going to act in our favor. God is against us. But were they right? Are you right when you take matters into your own hands, choosing not to trust God in the midst of those difficult circumstances? Are you right that God is not for you and with you? As we look at the story of Genesis 3, both Adam and all of us are not right when we take matters into our own hands. And yes, there's nuances of what this looks like. But when we see how God reacts to these people. And we remember how God reacts to His people. Friends, what we have is a testament that we can rely on. That God is indeed for our good. That God is indeed gracious. And that we can indeed trust Him. Now there's three things that He does for Adam and Eve in this story that I want to draw your attention. First, He calls out to them. Secondly, he clothes them. Thirdly, he chastens them. He does three things. And God does these three things for us as well. He calls us. He clothes us. And he chastens them. If you like to take notes, those are our three points that we're going to be looking at. You can follow along in your bulletin looking at these three points. And in looking at these three ways of a gracious God moving towards an unholy people, we can see that God is good and that indeed when the difficult circumstances arise in our life, we can trust Him. That we can find a way, not towards ourselves, but to God. So let's look at these three ways that we might take hold of that. First, God calls us. Having eaten of the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, the only thing that God had forbidden Adam and Eve to do, Adam and Eve were now tainted. Sin had entered their lives, and their hopes of becoming like God, or God-like, was now gone. Now one would think that God in this moment would immediately give up on them. That Adam and Eve are so diametrically opposed to God that He would crush them. But this isn't what God does. No, in verse 9, God 
calls out to them, where are you? God doesn't dismiss them. He calls out to them in their ungodly state. And yes, this can be scary. But what I want to show you is that this is a beautiful picture of God's grace towards them. God's grace reaching out and calling out to an unholy and ungodly people. I'm confident of this. That God continues to do this today. That when we seek to take control of our difficult circumstances, that he calls out to us wherever we are. And sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes we're reading a passage of scripture and the truth of who we are and how we're living hits us like, like, a, like clear as day. Wow, I have been sinning. And sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes we just are riddled with anxiety. And we're so worried and our body is so wrapped up. But what I want you to see is that both of these situations, whether it be clear as day or subtle, is God calling out to you, where are you? Where are you? How do we know that God is calling out to us? How do we know that God indeed continues to call out to us and it is gracious? There's two ways. We hide or we blame. Or we do both. Of course, this is what Adam and Eve did. We, they hid they didn't want to be known by God. They didn't want to be seen by God. They thought for a second that maybe they're hiding. We'll just kind of just brush it under the rug. But the reality is God knows where they are. Where are you? And they have to come out. We do the same thing when we are in our sin. We, 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 we lie to those around us saying, oh, I didn't do this. Or we tell white lies. We cover our tracks and we delete our web history. We project our confident self when we're deeply insecure. We hide. We hide. We hide because we don't trust. But not only do we hide what God's calling out to us, we blame. Perhaps this is a, a, a much clearer way that you know God is calling out to us. When you resort to blame. Ah, I was tired that day. You know how many times I've heard that before in my life? For myself and from others. How come you didn't do this? Well, I was tired. Or you do a, you do a school project late. And you're like, ah, I got to see. Ah, I just waited too long. I was busy. It's like, you're just blaming it on busyness or whatever. You're, you're blaming. God's calling out to you. When you are hiding or when you're blaming, God is calling out to you to recognize your sin, your control. And this, my friends, is a good and gracious thing. That God calls out to us. That God brings to our attention that we're hiding or are blaming. I learned this very well, the goodness of being called out when I was in high school. In high school, my family had a specific room in our house for the computer. And one day, I decided that I was going to go on that computer and look at a website that I should not be looking at. Now, I didn't get to do this, but my mom was tracking our every move on that computer. And one day, I was upstairs with my friend who had come to my house and we were playing in my house. And I heard from the computer room my mom call out to me, Dan, come down here. I already knew what she was going to call me out. I walked downstairs, shaking in my boots, fearful of the shame that I was about to encounter from my mom. And she says, did you go to this website? I said, I did. But my mom did not react as I expected her. You know, she, she had a history in our house to scream and yell and to get real harsh. But in that moment, 
My mom extended to me a grace that I didn't deserve. But it's a grace that I received. She called out to me and exposed me in my sin. But in that sin, she gave me grace. That moment has changed my life. And it has affected my family to this day. That happened 21 years ago. But being called out, that gracious calling out of being exposed was the moment and the opportunity that I had to receive grace. Every bit of us, when we're called out, however it might be, every moment we have this encounter being called out, we, like Adam and Eve, want to hide or we want to blame. And that's because we don't trust that God is good and gracious. But what we're going to see in just a moment is that like my mom, God is indeed gracious. So when you are called out, friends, <coughs> lean in. Don't push it away. Don't sweep it under the rug. Listen. Attend to the Lord. He is good and he is gracious. Now let me show you why he's good and gracious. Because not only did he call out to Adam and Eve, what did he do? He clothes them. He clothed them. Number two, he clothed them. The clothes that Adam and Eve fashioned for themselves were insufficient, right? Because when God came calling, they went a-hiding. They were insufficient. They were afraid because they were naked. That's what it says. <laughs> but when God calls to them in grace, he provides clothes for them. He provides clothes. And the clothes that he provides for them are sufficient to cover their shame. They're able to walk and to live and to talk. And just like Adam and Eve, he does the same for us. Now let me look. I want you to draw attention to the clothing. And I want you to see the difference between the clothing that Adam and Eve prepared and the clothing that God prepared. Let me remind you the clothing that Adam and Eve had prepared. Verse 7. Adam and Eve sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Adam and Eve took the leaves that they found off of the trees or the plant and they put them together. What they fashioned was insufficient. But look at how the Lord fashioned for them their clothes. Verse 21. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and he clothed them. Leaves, garments of skins. One didn't require blood. The leaves. The other did. The giving of clothes through animal skins Required for an animal to be killed, for the blood to be drawn out of that and fashioned them on them. And indeed, this is an important distinction that we as Christians must see. The, 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 the clothes that God provides is a clothing that requires blood. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that the people of God, to be in the presence of a holy God, Unholy people with a holy God requires a sacrifice. 
And so you see in the Old Testament all these sacrifices being made for the people of God that they might have God in the midst of them. An unholy people having blood shed for them. Because when God said that you sin, death is required of that sin. But God in his grace allowed a sacrifice to be made for them. A sacrifice that would cover them in their shame. And allow them to commune with him. You see, as Christians, God has provided us clothes that are dripping with blood. But it's not the blood of animals or goats. It's the blood of his son. You see, Isaiah 61 foreshadows this when, he, when, when it says this. I will, regret, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exalt in my God. For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress. And as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. You see, through Jesus, we are adorned with the salvation that he gives. And it is a salvation that he has earned and given us through his life and through his death. To those of you who trust in Jesus, you have received new clothing that covers you in your shame. No longer are you wretched and putrid. No longer are you naked and ashamed before God. You are clothed in the blood of Jesus. And you can stand before God confidently, without shame, and with joy. That's why when I pray each and every Sunday, we pray, in the, we pray through the Spirit in the name of the Son. And we, I, I often say we're clothed in His righteousness. We're not ashamed to come into the presence of a holy God. Yeah. We come confidently because of Jesus. We see this picture here in Genesis 3 of God beginning to do this, and we see it fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is ours for the taking. For those of you that are afraid to enter into the presence of God, you know you've sinned, you've been called out, but you're still in hiding. There is hope for you. Turn to Jesus. He clothes you in his own righteousness. He forgives you your sins. He does this with Adam and Eve. He does this for us. He clothes us. But lastly, what we see in this text, we see that God is indeed good and gracious, is that he chastens us. Now, some might need a refresher on the word chastening. Okay? I get it. It's all right. No shame there. But to chasten means to have a restraining or moderating effect. It's an action that moderates our response. And so in verse 22 through 24, we see God doing this. For Adam and Eve, he's chastening them when he removes them from the garden. God said to the heavenly throne, he said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherub and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. It's a very strange passage. 
But in the garden, both Adam and Eve had access to two trees. One was the tree of life, and one was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Of course, they ate the tree that was forbidden. The tree of life would sustain them and give them life. And in this passage, God's saying, if they take that, they're going to continue to live in their sin and misery for the rest of their life. Look, we see death as horrible, and indeed it is. Death is not God's intention. It's horrible. But we miss a sin and misery in the midst of constantly trying to take control, in the midst of this life that we're, we're never going to be rid of in this life, which is the difficult circumstances that we constantly face, guess what death becomes? A reprieve. A reprieve. I have a friend I work out with at the gym. She's 93 years old. She's been to church. You guys have seen her before. Her name's Miss Jackie. And Miss Jackie has been through a whole lot in her life. She doesn't have anyone. All she has are the people that work out with. Her husband has died. Her, 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 her children are getting old and ache. And she will often remind you, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to go. I'm ready to see Jesus. I'm ready to be with my husband again. Death, though horrible, becomes a reprieve. But not only is it a reprieve, it's a reminder. It's a chastening reminder to us that we are not God. We are not God. If Adam and Eve lived, they would have thought, we're like God in every way. So had God had to remove them, you are not like God. You are not in control. I am. And so he removes them from the garden, chasing them, reminding them, you're not God. They're not God. I saw this headline uh, a few weeks ago with the following phrase, Silicon Valley's quest to live forever. I don't know if you knew this, but Amazon's Jeff Bezos, Alphabet's Larry Page, Oracle's Larry Ellison, and Pounder's Peter Thiel are just a few of the super rich who have taken a keen interest in, emerging, or in, in the fast-emerging field of longevity. They're trying to discover how humans can cheat death. While this seems to be an invigorating breakthrough that many of us will want to pay attention to, the question for us is, would we want to live that long? And if we live that long, what would that mean? I think it means horror, is what I frankly think it means. Number one, because not everyone gets to live like these super wealthy people. We all have bills to pay. We have to counter the rising inflation. We have to deal with life and the misery that we come with. And so we see death, not as something that we have to avoid, but a chastening reality that reminds us that we aren't God that we rely on God, that Adam and Eve relied on God, that we do too, that we don't have to fear death. We can trust God. Of course, we can trust God in the midst of death because God himself has risen from the grave. But death is always a chastening reality for us. It reminds us that we are not God. We are called to believe in God. You have a low-level anxiety that manifests itself regularly. Are you taking medication to deal with that stress? Look, there's no judgment there. I experience that myself from time to time. Do you worry about your kids and lash out? God is trying to chasten you and to remind you, you're not God. You're not God. I am. And 
it's good that he reminds us this. The summer between my junior and senior year of high school, I attended the soccer camp in a state that I didn't call home. I didn't know anyone, and I felt very insecure and alone while at camp. Instinctively, though, I tried to fix my problems by playing really good soccer and by blending into the culture of this group by adopting their language and their values. Values and language that weren't normal to myself. And so with my play and with my personality, I thought my loneliness would just disappear. But when we started playing, things didn't go as planned. It's not that I was bad, but my play didn't quite elicit the attention that I hoped it would. I was great, not great, but I wasn't bad. And so I grew in desperation. I wanted people to see me. My insecurity was strong. And this desperation manifested itself one night when I played a game with some of the girls who were also in attendance with the game. Just like most of the week, though, my play didn't elicit any attention, especially from the girls. So to grab attention, after making a poor play, I uttered words that I should not have uttered. And I uttered them so loud that they could be heard across the field by many people. And I'll never forget when I uttered the word, I looked down and there was this family passing by. Why they were on this field, I have no idea. But I believe God was calling out to me in this moment. The family looked at me with eyes wide. And I think the mother was covering the little boy's ear. And I was cut. the insecurity continued. I remember the camp ending and I went to, to lunch with some of these people and I still wanted to be liked. I still wanted to be seen. Like me, please. And so we were talking about what it's like to be in high school in Florida where I went to high school. And I remember vividly embellishing what I did and what we, me and my friends done so that I might be accepted and liked. Not only was I insecure, not only was I angry and offensive, now as a fraud, all because of my attempt to control my insecurity and loneliness with my actions. Oh, that I knew how God would react. Oh, that I knew that I could trust him in the midst of people that I didn't know. Oh, that I knew that he clothed me in his righteousness, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus done and what has been graciously given to me then I could have walked confidently in that. And yes, those, those people might have rejected me. That's a reality. But God wouldn't. And then I could walk confidently. Not insecure. Not angry. Nor hiding. As a fraud. But confidently in who God says I am. It's the same for us, my friends. We all face our difficulties and in the midst of those difficulties, we want to control. But when we turn and we look to our good and gracious God, it wounds us away from taking that control. We can trust Him. He is good and He is gracious. This is what Genesis 3 reminds us. Let's take it to heart and ask God to continue to teach us this in prayer. Our gracious God, Indeed, you are gracious and you are good. You have called out to us. You have clothed us. And you can continue to remind us with the presence of death that we are not God. 
Oh, Lord, help us to remember these truths, especially in the midst of our difficulties, because our difficulties are constant and ever around us. Teach us what it means to trust you in those difficult circumstances. Teach us to rely on you, to call out for help, as the psalmist continually does throughout the psalms, crying out to you for help. Lord, help me. So may we, your people, begin to learn what it means to give up control, to lean into you and to lean into your people, to meet the deepest needs of our hearts. I pray that you would do this. Amen.